Great to have you back. Here we go. Here we go. Um, thanks for coming in the summertime. You know, we'll probably go five, six, seven weeks. I don't know. We'll see how you endure. Uh, we're going to carry on with this uh, bit about Galatians and James, trying to get theory and praxis together, or try to get what the Lord does and then what the Lord does through you together. So um, it's always nice to have Dr. Just here. He's just back from Africa, so his clock's a little upside down. But, um, you know, he continues to go all these places where nobody else goes, Africa, Madagascar, Russia, uh, so it's a good heart, and it's, it's always good to have a good friend who knows uh, far more than you do and to come in and do this. In Galatians, uh, you know, you've taught Galatians for 10 years now, I think. Is that right? So, I mean, this just falls out of his pockets, the kind of stuff that we would struggle for all day long. So it's very nice to have you here. Uh, and then we bless you on your way to go do the next thing. Let's pray. Almighty God, merciful Father, who created and completed all things, on this day when the work of our calling begins anew, we beg you, create its beginning, direct its continuance, and bless its end, that all our doings may be preserved from sin, our life sanctified, and our work this day well-pleasing to you through Christ our Lord. Amen. Um, I'll pass this around, and I'll also pass a, a sign-in sheet around. Uh, with the bag, if you got an extra dollar or two, drop it in. We'll send it to um, Africa or Russia or some place good, I promise you. Uh, Carol Hydern will tell me what to do. So there you go. Pastor, thank you so much for being here. You have till you know eleven o'clock. So you got about half an hour. Okay. Can you hear me? Good. Um, I have a memory within the last year of teaching Galatians. A little bit higher? Of teaching Galatians here. Is that right? Is my memory right? I have no idea when that was, but I do remember. And I think I gave you a lot of background on Galatians. Is that right? Do I remember that right? Okay. Um, yesterday, when I got in the car with Jenny and uh, Heather, and I got Scott's note saying, would you teach Galatians 3, 6 and following? Um, one of the things that I thought of was, uh, it's like entering in the middle of a conversation, Galatians 3, 6. And that's actually putting the best construction on it. Because it actually is entering in the midst of a very heated argument. And uh, in real estate, you know the, what, it, what they say? What do they say? Location, 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 right? Well, in, in doing interpretation, it's context, context, context. And you, and you can't just jump in at 3-6 without having a little context. So that's why I gave you two sides to the coin there, Galatians 2-11 through 3-1. And let me very quickly give you where we're at in the argument. And it is an argument. It's a very, very, very heated argument. And one of the best ways to think of what we're, we're entering into, and 3-6 is where it starts. Basically, what we're entering into is a sword fight between Paul and his opponents. And I use the word sword because they are using the, what, what Paul calls the sword of the Spirit. They're using the Word of God. And basically, what you have is a, is a little bit of a battle, a fight, an argument, a heated, heated argument with salvation at stake between Paul and his opponents. And uh, this is where 
the densest, you know, everybody know what the word exegetical means? Interpretive argument of how to understand the Old Testament and Abraham. This is where it begins, in chapter 3, verse 6. And it is where the, I mean, it, it's, I, I still sometimes have a hard time sorting out who's talking and why. Now, come back with me a little bit, because you, you just ha you have to know a little bit of the history. And I did this before, but I'm going to do it real quickly, okay? Um, somewhere, late 40s, 46 to 48, okay? Remember the Apostolic Council in Jerusalem is 49, 50. But somewhere in the year 46 to 48, so this is about 16 years after Jesus ascended, okay? Paul does his first missionary journey in the southern part of, of Asia there. Asia Minor, near where you live, Tarsus, does a little tour there. And that's really where the Gentile mission begins. It's phenomenally successful, except he does experience persecution from Jews to the point where he's left dead on the side of the road. And that's probably, probably, although there's some debate, that's probably where he goes to Galatia and find, founds the churches in Galatia. Okay, 46 to 48. He's very excited about what happened. He's with Barnabas, as you know, the son of consolation. They're the two that went out to this little tour. You can read it in Acts 13 and 14. They come back to Antioch, and they realize, you know, the church in Jerusalem is not probably going to receive this well, because they're Jews, and they just went to Gentiles. So let's go down and tell them what we did. So they do. And Galatians 2, 1 to 10 is the report of Paul of the meeting they had there privately between Peter, James, and John. Now, I think I mentioned this before, but let's get the players right. Peter, we all know Peter is first among the apostles. James here is James, the brother of our Lord. So this is the, the bishop of Jerusalem. And John is the evangelist. You know, James and John are the two sons of Zebedee. James, the son of Zebedee, has been killed. He's the first of the 12 to be martyred in the year 42, 44. In fact, this morning in the gospel, I read it three times. Boy, is that a great gospel. Was that a great? Mark said something in that gospel I've never heard before in any of the other gospels. He qualified John as the brother of James. I wonder why, what's going on there. I don't know if you noticed that, but... That was different. It's usually Peter, James, and John, but it said Peter and James and John, the brother of James. I don't want to go there, but it, that was a really interesting thing that happened there. So, so anyway, they have this private meeting. They have this handshake of fellowship. Peter and Barnabas, Peter, excuse me, Paul and Barnabas go back to Antioch. It's all good. Gentiles are in. Okay, Jerusalem's happy. Peter comes up to Antioch because he wants to kind of experience the Gentile mission. He eats with Gentiles. He celebrates Lord's Supper with Gentiles. He's really loving it. If, I don't know if you remember what I said last time, but you remember Peter's a Jew. He'd been eating Jewish food all these years, and all of a sudden now he's eating French food, you know? And he's just going crazy because he's never had taste buds that he discovered there in Antioch with the Gentiles eating all this great food. But then somebody from Jerusalem call, 
comes up. They're called the, the, the men from James, probably not from James, but people from Jerusalem who are very, very critical of the Gentile mission. And they put the fear of God into Peter. Probably, and I, I, this is a guess, but probably because there are these, these Jewish zealots who carry these long knives called Sakari knives, they're called Sakari, and they go around slicing people up who aren't faithful Jews. And Peter is basically probably worried about Christian Jews, Jewish Christians, you know, not the Gentiles, but the Jewish Christians who have kind of now fellowship with Gentiles, getting persecuted, even martyred by these terrorists. Terrorists, Middle East, goes way back. You know, he's worried about it, so he separates from the church. He goes off with the Jews, and all the Jews follow him, and even Barnabas goes with him, and the Gentiles are, are separate. And if you look at Galatians 2, 11 to 14, that's where Paul gets in his face. Gets in his face big time. And, um, you know, he calls him a hypocrite. And uh, he says, you know, I mean, he, he, I, mean he, he, I, I think there's a break in the church here between Peter and Paul. It's terrible. And he said, I said to Cephas before them all, this is verse 14, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Now, that's, that's, a, that's a terrible moment in the church history right there. And um, I think if the, if the story ended right there, we would have had two churches, the Church of the Jews and the Church of the Gentiles. Now, I, I think Paul writes now to the Galatians because the same people who came to Antioch to cause trouble there go to Galatia and do the same thing and split this church up. So we've got a kind of a, 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 a thing like this. Paul's going and founding all these churches, and then these people from Jerusalem are coming in behind him, and, and this is what they're saying, basically. And this is, this is the way to, it's kind of the key to not just the New Testament and Paul, but the key to our life, too. This is exactly what we're, we fight this today. Um, and and, and I, I say this with, with, with complete, I think, accuracy. The people who are coming from you know, behind Paul and undoing what he's doing, these are his classmates. These are his best friends. They all went to school together. They all went to the school of the Pharisees of Gamaliel in Jerusalem. So they all know each other. Paul was the valedictorian. He was the best. And these guys are, are coming in behind Paul, and this is what they're saying. They said this in Antioch. Now they said it in Galatia. They're saying, you know, Paul, he's brilliant. There's nobody more brilliant than Paul. Nobody knows the Bible better than Paul. Nobody argues scripture better than Paul. But, you know, Paul had that conversion thing. And you know how that gets people. You know, it kind of... And Paul didn't tell you the whole truth. Paul said it was only by grace. Grace and grace alone. And we're here to tell you, yeah, it's by grace. You get in by grace, but you stay in by works of the law. And he just didn't want to tell you that you had to become a Jew first before you become a Christian. You have to be circumcised. You have to keep the food laws. You have to keep the Sabbath laws. You've got to keep all that stuff. Paul was, was not telling you the whole truth. We're here to tell you the truth, that you've got to do works of the law. You have to do works of the law. And if you don't do that, you're not in fellowship. We can't give you the supper. That's basically what they said. 
So you've got to become a Jew. You've got to be circumcised. Now, if you remember, the Galatians are mercenaries. These are tough guys. So circumcision is not that big a deal. But it's still a big deal. And, uh, you know, so what, is, what, what happens? Well, the Apostolic Council is what happens. That's after Galatians. So we don't know about that yet. That comes afterward. And it all kind of flushes out. But it, when we're in the Galatians text, the end of the story is not known yet. Now, I love verse 15, 2.15. You've probably done this. But I, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, what one commentator says. This is Paul rhetorically putting his arm around Peter. So after getting in his face and saying, Peter, you know, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force Gentiles to live like Jews? And then Paul goes something like this. But, Peter, you and I were Jews by birth, and we're not, and this is really very kind of condemning of Gentiles, not Gentile sinners, you know? And what he's saying to Peter is this. Peter, you know, we're Jews. We know the Old Testament. You know. You've read it. Just like Jesus chastises the Emmaus disciples and his own disciples. You know, you, you didn't read the Old Testament right. And, and this is the first statement on justification in, in Paul. We know, Peter, you and I, Jews, by birth, that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. We believed in Jesus Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. It's all by grace. And he says, Peter, you know that. And you, and you messed up by splitting the church there in Antioch. Okay? Is everybody with me? Sort of? I mean, this is really a d dense argument. What, one of the passages I think you have to look at to understand the section that has been assigned for today is verse 19. Because this, this is a critical thing for Paul. Um, and I, I would, could look at all those other verses, but just look at 19 with me. Because it's it's, if you can get this verse, you've unlocked Galatians. Paul says this, For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. And then you know the rest of that. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me in life. I now live in the flesh. I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me, etc. Now, here's the, here's the hard part, okay? For through the law, I died to the law. Well, what does it mean, through the law, to die to the law? Now, I think, maybe you're different, but I think the idea of dying to the law is easier to understand. And, and I just look at it this way. If I had a board, I'd put it up here. There's, the cross separates history. And Paul, before the cross, as a Jew, his life was defined by the law. Okay? And now after the cross, after his conversion on this side, his life is defined by Christ and the crucifixion. So here is his life to the law and now his life to Christ. So he says, I died to the law. I died to that life of the law. Okay? Now I live in Christ. You know, I'm co-crucified with Christ. So I'm defined by the cross in Christ, not by the law. The problem is, how do you die to the law through the law? That's the key. How do you, what does it mean through the law? And here's, this is my interpretation. You can take it for what it's worth. But I think what Paul is saying there is, 
that what kills Jesus on the cross is the law. The law kills Jesus. Now think about that. Paul actually talks about the law as a superhuman power, like Satan. Sin is also a superhuman power. So also is the flesh, the, the, the impulsive desire of the flesh. And here is how the law kills Jesus. Because, and, and this is, you have to know this to know the argument that starts in 3.6. Because that, this whole argument that he's having with his opponents, it's a, and it's a very heated argument. It's like a sword fight. And these guys, it's for blood. You know, I mean, it's for, it's for, for life, the life in Christ. What, what Paul says is that when Jesus was crucified, and here, jump to our text, if you will. Um, go to uh, verse 10, 310. Okay? All who rely on works of the law are under a curse. Now, you can look it up. This is the only place where Paul uses, in all of his writings, the language of curse. Only place only place. Now, again, if we had hours, I could try and demonstrate to you that this passage, talking about the law as a curse, that Paul doesn't want to talk about that. His opponents are talking about that. And they're, they're, what they're saying is, Galatians, if you don't follow the law, you're going to be cursed. You're going to be cursed. And you don't want to be cursed. You want to live. You know, and Paul basically didn't tell you enough so that you can live. He told you enough so that you can be cursed, and you don't want that, okay? But Paul turns the tables on him. This is how they're using scripture in their own way. And here's what Paul says. Those who rely on works of law are in the curse, for it is written. Here he quotes scripture. Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. If you try to keep the law, Paul says, here's what the Bible says, here's what the Old Testament says, you're going to be cursed. Because you can't. You can't. Paul was an Augustinian. <laughs> he believed in original sin. And he believed that if you are just a little bit trying to keep the law, you've got to keep it all, and you can't, so you're dead. So don't even try. Now, if you, if you, this is what scholars call a mirror reading. If you look at kind of what is the argument of the opponents, you don't have it written out. Nobody wrote it out. But we know what they're saying. They're going in there, and they're saying this. They're saying, yeah, you've got to keep the law, but you know, you don't have to keep the whole law. Not the whole thing. It's too much. None of us can keep the whole law. But there are some markers of the law that we want you to keep. Because you, you have to show good faith. And you, and, you know, we're really all Jews, first and foremost. We're the chosen people. If you want to really be in Christ, you've got to become a Jew first. So circumcision, like I said, the, the markers of being a Jew. You've got to do those things. You know, all that other stuff, no, I guess there's some here, some there we can't. But we know that they're picking and choosing. We know they're picking and choosing. If we had more time, I could show you in the whole lesson, the, the Galatians, where that is evident that they're picking and choosing. But you have to trust me on that. Paul says you can't. And then, and then look, at what he, look, look what he says in verse 13. I'll, I'll come back to those other passages if we have time. He says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Now, this is where through the law comes in. Here's where dying through the law comes in. Because here, here is how Paul sees it. 
Jesus on the cross. Jesus on the cross as sinner. Magnificent sermon this morning by Pastor Bruzik, but there'd be one thing I would have added. <laughs> and, I, and I was going to say it to him privately, but I might as well do it publicly. <laughs> and that is, and he, he had it, he had it, but there's a great exchange between that woman with the flow of blood. Okay? Jesus' power goes out of him into her to heal her, but what happens to her sickness? It goes into him. He takes it on him. He bears our diseases, our sins. And that's how Jesus is a curse on the cross. He is the ultimate sinner. Now, I know you're, yeah, and I'm, I'm sure Pastor Bruzik says it, I, but I know my son-in-law, Josh Gaining, says, you can't outsin Jesus. Doesn't he say that? Something like that? He said that before, okay? And that's, he gets it right here from Paul. There is no greater sinner than Jesus. And when he's on the cross bearing the sins of the world, he is there as sinner. And what does the law do to sinners? It curses them. And because he's the greatest sinner, it kills him. And that's how he died to his life, living under the law, through the law that killed Jesus. Here's another way of looking at it. There's a collision on the cross. There's a collision between Christ and the law. And the collision of Christ and the law there is Christ as our sin bearer. The one who had that woman's flow of blood. The one who had that, that Jairus' daughter's death and your death and my death. It's all in him and the law kills him. Curses him. Slays him. And that's why Paul then, and, and he's going after his opponents here, Christ redeemed us from the curse of law by becoming cursed for us, for it is written, cursed is everybody who does what? Hang on a tree. That's the, one of the great passages from Deuteronomy that proves the crucifixion. The crucifixion, cursed, you know? I mean, now, I, 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 it's probably hard for us to, and it's even hard, you know, for those of us who spend a lot of time in this text, to realize how absolutely brilliant Paul is here. But, you know, what, what you've got is you've got two scholarly group of people, Paul and his opponent, using scripture to prove their point. Now, just very briefly, this is the section that is loaded with scripture. Just, just three six, look at, look at three, just as Abraham believed in God, it was counted to him as righteousness. That's from Genesis. And if I have my notes here, I could tell you where it's from, but I think that's Genesis 15, 6, right? So that's scripture. Know then that it is those of the faith who are sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel before him to Abraham, saying, in you all the nations will be blessed. That's Genesis 12, 3. Okay? So in three verses, we've quoted Genesis twice. Genesis 15 and Genesis 12. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith, for all who rely on works of law are under curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide in all the things written in the book of law to do them. That is Deuteronomy 27, 26. Third citation of scripture. Now it is evident, Paul says, that no one is justified before God by the law, for here's the fourth citation of scripture. The righteous shall live by faith. That's Habakkuk, right? 2, 4. Now you see that verse, 3.11, and you see 3.6? 
where righteousness and faith are in the same verse? The only two verses in the Old Testament where righteousness and faith are in the same verse. And Paul didn't have a computer where he types in faith and righteousness and just lets the thing go and finds... He knew that. He knew that, that Genesis 15 and Habakkuk were the only two places where righteous and faith. Okay, so that's what? How many do we have? One, two, three, that's four. And then, but the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Okay, where's that from? That's from Leviticus 18.3, another passage from Scripture. And then, of course, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. That's from Deuteronomy 27.26.2. He, he quotes it again there. Now, look at that's scripture like this. Okay? Now, his opponents have their texts that they're using for their arguments. Paul, of course, he's on the defensive. He had his text when he was there by himself and he presented the gospel. But now these guys are undoing the gospel with their text. So Paul has to take their texts and work their texts and bring in his own text. And one of the things. Like I said, if we had more time, we could try and determine which texts are Paul's and which texts are his opponents. And how is Paul using their texts? Now, let me, let me just give you one, because my time is up, but let me just give you one quick glimpse into how they're using the text. If you go back to Genesis 12, which he quotes there, you see it, in you all the nations will be blessed. There are three blessings given to Abraham. Three blessings given to Abraham, or three covenants or promises or whatever you want to call them. One is circumcision, definitely. His opponents are right. Circumcision is huge. The other one is the land, Cana. You're going to get the land, the promised land. Okay? And then the third blessing is that all the nations are going to be blessed in your loins, Abraham. So there are three promises. And if you look in the text, and, I, and I'm sorry, maybe it's jet lag, but I can't remember where it's used, but he uses the word promise in the plural, which means that Paul knows there are three promises given to Abraham. Okay, now which one do you pick? Do you pick all three? Do you pick one? You know? Well, which promise are the, the opponents picking to the Galatians? That they have to do? Circumcision. Circumcision. Okay? And Paul says, no, I'm not going to pick that one. The one I'm going to pick is all nations are blessed because that's the messianic promise that the Messiah comes out of Abraham's loins and everyone, Jews and Gentiles, are going to be blessed in Abraham. And that's the one that actually obtains, not circumcision. Circumcision ends. You know? And Paul, if he probably had to write another epistle and wanted to argue it again, he would argue that when Jesus is circumcised, that's the end of circumcision. He ends circumcision with his own circumcision. At least, that's certainly how the church understood Jesus' circumcision. But Paul, and, and again, you know, the, the, the actual covenant of circumcision comes after the blessing to Abraham that all the nations would be blessed. So that's prior to circumcision. And Paul knows this, and his opponents know this, and what you have right here in these verses that Pastor Bruzik asked me to talk about is perhaps one of the most sophisticated ways that scripture is argued in the New Testament between two high-powered, exegetical, interpretive scholars, Paul and his opponents. And it's complicated, man. Every time I do this, we do it in the Greek. 
and look at the language carefully. I always have to spend a lot of time carefully thinking through then, okay, which are Paul's arguments, which are his opponents, and how are they doing this? It's, this is really dense stuff. But it, 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 in many ways, it's not that hard because it, it really boils down to what we looked at in that passage in verse 16, one of the most important verses in the Bible. Is it justification by works of the law, or is it by, and I, I'm not going to get into the faith in Christ or faith of Christ. That's for another time. I think I've already done that here once before, but our time is up. But I, maybe you have some questions. Is everybody tracking? And I didn't even look at one to five, which is really important too. After this, the argument goes on. The argument actually goes almost, well, the argument goes to chapter five. So chapter three and chapter four of Paul is this one long argument between his opponents. You know? And, and it's, it's a varied argument, because at one point Paul gets real personal with them. You know, he goes, I came to you in weakness, you know, and you befriended me, you treated me like an angel of God. I mean, it's, so you see his pastoral side come out and his anger. Look at his anger at the beginning of this whole thing. Oh, foolish Galatians? That's a bad word. Stupid, you're stupid. Who bewitched you? Who put you on drugs? You know? And he said, I pu publicly portrayed Jesus as, as crucified, you know? Are you so foolish? He's really, you know... How did you get the spirit? Did you get it through works of law? Did you get it through the proclamation that elicits faith? You know, I mean, it's, it's, it's a great, great section, but it's dense. Any comments or questions? Everybody sort of? Yeah. No, uh, it's a different word, but it's the same idea. Although anathema can be... Um, Anathema actually means that you're put into the precincts of God and you can receive a blessing or a curse. So to let him be anathema can actually be a good thing, but context tells you whether it's good or bad. Okay, and the context there is definitely bad, bad, bad. But it's the same thing in the sense of curse, yeah. But that's a good, that's a, and, th and that's, that's a great passage because he says, even if an angel from heaven should preach to you, and, and a lot of people don't know what that reference is. And the reference there is that an angel, not in the, it doesn't occur in the Bible, but it occurs in intertestamental literature, an angel was supposed to be the one who brought the law to Moses in Sinai. Did everybody catch that? So Paul is saying, because his opponents are saying, hey, an angel brought the law to, and we're angels, you know? We're bringing the law, just like the angel did to Moses. So we're saying, and, and he says, even if an angel from heaven brings to you a gospel contrary, let him be anathema, let him be cursed. So good question, yeah. Another hand back there? Yes, sir. Yeah, you do it, that's right. Well, I think, and again, I'm, I'm not a James expert, and maybe Pastor Bruzik could tell me if it's this. I think he uses the same passage as in 3.6. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Is it the same passage? I think it is. I think it's the same passage. And give me another 15 minutes, and I would have shown that that comes from 15. And the promise to Abraham that all nations would be blessed in him comes from chapter 12. So what did he believe? He believed 
that God was going to bless him. Because he heard it. He already had the promise. And that was counted to him as righteousness. That he believed the promise that he had. And uh, what the opponents are doing is in chapter 15 is where circumcision is given as the covenant. And they're, they're claiming that that is what, you know, is the, is the, the righteousness. That's, that's part of the, the dense, density of this argument. <clears throat> but anyway, good question. I, I, I think, as, as you're, I, I'm sure you're, you're peeling out here, works, works are absolutely necessary. They are. You can't be a Christian without works. But works are part of your being. And your being is Christ, and the works that you do are the works of Christ. So you're just simply being what you are in Christ. And that's why works are important, because they're simply a manifestation of Christ. And if you just think of, of, of the works of a Christian as being, being Christ in the world, forgiving, loving, compassionate, charitable, merciful, you know, all those things, sermon on the plain, sermon on the mount kind of things, then you've got what works are. And it simply is being Christ in the world. And James knew that. I think that James is all over that. And that's why apostolic counsel is important, because James does stand up and defend Paul. I think I talked about that when I was here a while ago. Do we have time for more questions, Pastor? One more? Okay. Well, you're, you're using works and you're using faith. And I would say, you started out by saying it was a work that he did, and then you said it was his faith. Okay, and I would say... Um, God asked him, yeah, to do something. He believed. He was a faithful guy. And he trusted that God would keep his promise even if he sacrificed his son. So he, his, his faith in God led him to do what, this is what we're talking about, to, 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 to be faithful in the works that God called him to do. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I would agree. I would agree. Yeah. Close? Okay. Let's rise for a blessing. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Amen.